Hi, welcome to this Equine Veterinary General podcast on the best of equine reproduction. I'm Celia Marr, editor of EVJ. This podcast is one of three based on British Equine Veterinary Association's scientific review of 2014. The scientific review was first presented at Beaver Congress this September. Three panellists select the most important and interesting papers published in the last year. And for this podcast on equine reproduction, the selection of important papers was made by Dr. Mandy Demester of the Royal Veterinary College and is presented by James Crabtree of Equine Reproductive Services, Yorkshire. The panellists have chosen their papers from all journals and they are not limited to EVJ, although EVJ is very well represented in this selection. At the end of the podcast, we will provide details of the papers which have just been discussed so that you can find the papers if you want to read more detail. So I'm delighted to welcome to the stage now James uh, Crabtree, who's going to cover some of the reproductive aspects for us. James. Thank you, Neil. And uh, I would say thank you for the, to the Beaver Committee for inviting me, but thank you for the Beaver Committee to, for placing me into this uh, position at last minute. Um, Mandy does send her apologies. She wished she could be here to present this herself, but um, unfortunately she can't. So it's been a a pretty big year in equine reproduction. Um, In January, it was the 11th International Symposium in Equine Reproduction, which was in New Zealand, which uh, some of us from the UK attended. Here is Mandy, next to Andrew McGladdery, uh, Belinda Rose, which is uh, Mandy's PhD student at the RVC. And uh, I will, so I don't forget, I will just say that uh, Belinda is uh, presenting some of her work in the clinical research um, forum tomorrow morning so uh, if you're interested in pregnancy failure it might be good to listen um, I've just listed some of the papers that we're going to look at today we're going to look at some of the work by uh, Zamira Gibb and the workers at Newcastle uh, University in Australia we're going to look at some papers on the non-pregnant mare some for regarding pregnancy we're going to have a quick look at a case study and then we're going to touch on one which is maybe just raise a couple of ethical questions um, at the end So we just decided that we'd just have a little review about the background behind the paper and then present you with the paper. So when it comes to stallion fertility, we we ask ourselves, what are the the markers for stallion fertility? Well, the traditional markers being the number of sperm, the percentage of live sperm, the motility, those being total progressive and velocity parameters, and morphology. Now, traditionally, that we can figure out from that the total number of live progressively motile, morphologically normal spermatozoa. But that doesn't always answer the question uh, or answer all of the questions about fertility. So there's certain advanced semen analysis available. Um, There isn't many CASA systems available in the UK, but we do have some. So computer-assisted semen motility just puts a little bit of um, reference markers into our assessment and turns that subjective assessment into more of an objective assessment. And then we have some of the fluorescent dyes available for staining sperm, looking at viability staining, acrosome integrity, mitochondrial function, and chromatin integrity. And then we can combine all of that using flow cytometry. Now, a lot of this isn't available in the UK, available in North America and Europe, but getting semen samples out there is pretty difficult to, for assessment. So there's always a trend within reproductive stallion work that we want certain a battery of tests or a certain test that will help guide us 
in stallion fertility. And the group here at Newcastle, headed by Robert Aitken, Samira Gibb and uh, Sarah Lamborn, uh, are doing some quite interesting work looking at oxidative stress and sperm function. Um, Robert explained it very well in that it, it, equine sperm are the sprinters compared to human sperm, which is sort of more of long-distance runners. They use, um, horse sperm use ox oxidative phosphorylation for their energy source, whereas human sperm use uh, glycolysis. So there's some significant differences there, and looking at those differences and exploring those dif differences may give us some answers as to function and fertility. So the first paper I would like to pull up is... is um, it's actually the, the presentation that uh, Zamira was awarded, the Young Presenters Award at uh, ISA for. Um, I thought it was a very interesting paper. If, if anybody involved in reproductive work who knows that we chill semen for shipping knows that certain stallions don't, don't survive that chilling process very well and the sperm arrives very damaged, the principles of ship, ship, um, shipping semen are that you want to dilute the semen um, so that you can provide it with nutrients for its uh, transport, but also to remove some of the, help remove some of those byproducts of uh, energy store, and also chilling it reduces its activity. So what they looked at was uh, the supplementation of semen at room temperature with pyruvate and L-carnitine, pyruvate being the um, energy source for oxidative phosphorylation and L-carnitine as an um, antioxidant. And they put those under those conditions for um, 72 hours. And it, just to quickly go through the process, they collected the semen, they extended it, they spun it down and removed the pellet. They then resuspended it and added their uh, agents and corrected the solution for osmolarity. And here we can see total motility at the start of the process was up around the 75% here for pyruvate and L-carnitine. And there was a significant difference at 72 hours. Now, these, these, these samples were held at room temperature 21 to 23 degrees C. And I think it's quite amazing that three days we were still having a motility of up around 70%. So I think it's very interesting work and more needs to be done. But um, it certainly is moving us, always constantly moving us forward in a direction. And also, same workers here at Newcastle. Um, have reported a paper recently on the, the paradoxical relationship between stallion fertility and oxidative stress. Well, what did it tell us? There's a positive relationship between the level of oxidative stress that a sperm encounters and its fertility. Now, if we have a lot of oxidative stress, we would assume that that is going to damage the sperm. Therefore, it would be less fertile. But this assessment, we've got uh, oxidative DNA damage, lower vitality, um, was associated with uh, pregnancy, higher pregnancy rates. So we were looking at sort of, there are pretty small figures, but it's 60% versus 60, 69%. Um, so it's an intriguing paper, and it's something that we're going to need to be thinking about. So if we take anything away from this little mini-review is keep reading, keep researching, and keep learning, because there's a lot of work being done, and we need to keep moving forward in a progressive direction to try and figure out some of these conundrums. Okay, mare fertility. What we like to focus on now is um, horses don't have a menopause. They don't menstruate, so uh, it's not really. But um, ovarian senescence maybe occurs in 
30 to 50% of mares over 20 years of age. Um, and there's a, been a query of what measures we can use to advise clients on the reproductive age and the reproductive potential of their mares. And there's also the area of subfertility in mares. What causes low conception rates, the causes of early pregnancy failure. Um, and Mandy highlighted Barry Ball and Elaine Carnivali's work, suggesting that this is the quality of the oocyte rather than the uterine environment. And now, if I'm right, we, uh, the, the work as Carnivali um, did was um, they transferred oocytes from aged mares into young mares and oocytes from young mares into aged mares. And if I'm right, the pregnancy rates for the young oocytes were a lot higher than the mares with the old oocytes. So it took the uterine environment out of the question. And the paper we'd like to draw to our attention is uh, one by Anthony Clays. And they looked at anti-malarian hormone and uh, antral follicle counts. So looking at the follicular reserve of the mares in relation to AMH. Um, N equals 45, so a nice number. And what they found was a positive relationship between anti-malarian hormone concentration and the antral follicle count. Now, I think there was a very much of a systematic examination of these ovaries from ovarian pedicle uh, right across and back again. And I think there was a pretty high degree of repeatability in this study between examiners and between examinations. But the significant thing was the correlation was strongest and most significant for, for the old mare age group, so 19 to 27 years. We can see that here, that the correlation was stronger for that age group. And then I want to move on to a paper published by Bjorn Rambags uh, and um, at Tom Stout's group that looked at... Um, advancing maternal age, and mitochondrial damage. And we've got here young um, scanning electron microscopy of uh, mitochondria within the oocytes. So these mitochondria were uh, looked at in young and old oocytes, and then they were cultured, matured in vitro, um, and then we were having a look at their mitochondria again. And we can see here clearly that we've got some differences between the mitochondria and the, of the old and the young mares. We've got a, a loss of the, the usual pattern and a, a loss of uh, the horizontal cristae that would be in here. And that drew me backwards almost. I know this isn't within our time frame, but it did just draw me backwards to uh, some of Bjorn's earlier published work on looking at chromosome numbers in, uh, in oocytes. We here, if you, I don't know whether you can see that or not, but in the, in the D here, we've got highlighted a diploid cell, and here we've got multiple signals indicating that we've got tetraploid and, and greater numbers of chromosomes. So it's looking at the degree of uh, aneuploidy in older oocytes. So what did that tell us? It told us that anti-malarian hormone is a, is a better reflection of reproductive age than is the calendar age. So perhaps we can look to use anti-malarian hormone as a, a guide and a, potentially a predictor of the reproductive potential of these older mares. Um, and, as, and also this, there was a stronger correlation in that older mare age group. Um, it was repeatable between mares and within the Easter cycle, so it could theoretically be done at any stage during the Easter cycle. 
Um, and regarding information for clients and ourselves, oocytes in older mares have defective mit- de- de- defects of mitochondria, so they're, they're less and they become abnormal. So it just adds to the weight of evidence that as mares age, their oocytes age, and then we have these problems with them. Then there was a, an interesting paper at ISA by uh, Ryan Ferris uh, uh, at um, Colorado State, and uh, they were looking at the biofilm production by gram-negative bacteria isolated from the uterus. And this was very interesting because it was, it was the first time I'd known biofilms were sort of introduced. The theory of biofilms and are, are pretty sound in medicine, but the presence within the reproductive tract was first drawn to our attention by the, um, the late Michel LeBlanc. And this was the first paper that I was aware of to actually look at the biofilm production um, ability, if you like, of of the bacteria that might be present in the equine reproductive tract. And it was interesting that approximately 80% of gram-negative bacterial isolates from the equine uterus were able to produce a biofilm in vitro. Then they also looked at uh, a couple of anti-biofilm agents, uh, acetylcysteine, uh, gallium nitrate, and trisEDTA, at uh, the potential for dissolving this biofilm um, had an implication on uterine therapies. Um, no single antibiofilm treatment consistently prevented biofilm mass formation. Now, uh, Ryan was swamped after his presentation by clinicians and people interested to know, did you try this? Did you try DMSO? Did you try uh, kerosene? Did you try... And uh, Ryan was going to go away with a long list of things to try. But Ryan very kindly, in the early hours of this morning, sent me a couple of images just to demonstrate... um, This is uh, a biofilm formed uh, on top of this uh, fluid of uh, culture vial, um, and we can see a a thick... I think one can imagine that uh, if that was adhered to the endometrium, one might have a a bit of difficulty in trying to remove uh, that biofilm and treat the bacterial infection. And this was part of the study. Uh, These pegs, these are downward-pointing pegs that were sat in culture wells, and then the biofilm was stained with methylene blue. It's the way that Ryan used to assess the biofilm biomass. You could then dissolve this and look at it under a, a plate reader, but it's just interesting to see how the biofilm had adhered to these plastic pegs and had stuck on there. Uh, I think it's very interesting, and uh, I think it's an area of future research. And then we move on to the pregnant mare. The highlight for 2012, uh, 2014, sorry, um, we believe is that is about progestin support throughout pregnancy. Um, the horse has been very unusual. Um, we look at its progesterone profile. We have the primary. This is progesterone over time, over the length of gestation. Here we have uh, the progesterone produced by the primary CL. And then we have a resurgence in progesterone production because of ECG uh, stimulation of the primary CL and formation of secondary CLs. But then we see progesterone dive during pregnancy, and we know that the placenta of the uh, fetal placental unit will take over production of um, progestins or progestogens. Um, But it's been intriguing that progesterone doesn't appear to be P4, I should say. It doesn't appear to be measurable during pregnancy. Pregnancy. And there's this paper um, here, uh, published in PNAS. Uh, pregnancy without progesterone in horses defines a second endogenous biopotent progesterone receptor agonist, dihydroprogesterone. 
So it, this was quite exciting in that we've explained this conundrum, if you like, of what was supporting pregnancy during uh, that later stage of gestation. So just a quick review. We have P4 here. This is progesterone. Um, and then dihydroprogesterone sits here, catalyzed by the enzyme 5 alpha reductase. Might just uh, skip over this in the interest of time. We have here we have analysis of P4 progesterone and dihydroprogesterone. Now, in this study, um, it was looked at whether or not mares were able to maintain their pregnancies in the face of a prostaglandin uh, injection on day 14 of pregnancy. So on day 14 here, mares were administered prostaglandin. Now, uh, here we have some controls and some treated mares. In this group, mares were treated with dihydroprogesterone, and in this group, mares were just treated with the vehicle. Now, with no dihydro dihydroprogesterone support, five out of five pregnancies were lost. But when dihydroprogesterone was supplemented, seven of the nine pregnancies were maintained, indicating that this dihydroprogesterone is biopotent. And also, we, dihydroprogesterone was looked at over time in, during gestation, and now we have a more classic progesterone curve over time. So this work perhaps does explain uh, what active agents there are there working to maintain pregnancy in the mare, and this has previously been unknown or unproven. So it's the first demonstration in any species of the ability of dihydroprogesterone to maintain pregnancy. And perhaps we might have to rethink our interpretation of uh, progesterone levels and their role in the maintenance of pregnancy. And, and also, it, we maybe need to give a bit more consideration to uh, deciding to supplement mares with synthetic progestins, ultranagest, uh, during pregnancy. We need to maybe ask ourselves, what are we really doing? What are we achieving uh, with that supplementation? Okay, um, moving now on to the non-pregnant mare. A little bit of a mini-review there on, on uh, light supplementation to mares. Um, we generally, if we want to enhance or advance the breeding se season in, in mares for whatever reason, usually covering early, um, we would generally begin light therapy from the 1st of December. Now, what we're trying to achieve is 16 hours of daylight and 8 hours of darkness. And if we can provide that to the mares for 8 to 10 weeks from the 1st of December, we might, we might advance the breeding season by as much as 3 months. Generally, we find light therapy in the northern part of England. If we do start it around Christmas time, uh, we can usually advance our mares by at least a month, usually about a month ahead of other mares. What's the disadvantages to doing this? Well, it, it's quite costly. And if we put ourselves in the situation, well, let's think about sort of New Zealand as the opposite to us. Our winters are cold. Generally, most of our mares will be housed or barned, whereas somewhere like New Zealand may have their mares turned out all, all the time. Uh, although it's not December time in New Zealand, they will have the mares out at pasture. They'll be fed out at pasture. They will live out at pasture, and it can become very expensive then in that system to bring those mares under lights to be able to give them light therapy. <coughs> so step back a little bit to 2012. Um, 
it was demonstrated by uh, Barbara Murphy's group that threshold of wavelength of light to inhibit melatonin production in the horse lies between somewhere between 3 and 10 lux. Traditionally, we'd used to think about 100 lux, enough to read, read a newspaper in the box by. But they found that they could achieve melatonin in, inhibition by exposing a single eye to a low wavelength of blue light at about 10 lux. So then moving forward to uh, 2014, um, they've published their work now that blue light from an individual light mask individual light masks directed at a single eye advances the breeding season in mares. So a low-intensity blue light to a single eye um, to a, a light that is very professionally fastened into a, uh, a hood um, can advance the breeding season in mares. Now, this is a very, very practical thing. Here we have three groups. These mares were under light therapy, these mares had the mask, and these mares were just in the paddock. The mares in the dark blue were cycling, in the middle section were transitional, and in the end, the light blue were anestrous. So on the 20th of November, when the study started, um, after... Uh, I'm just trying to think whether it's Northern, Northern Hemisphere. Um, we had a large proportion of mares in Group 3 that were anestrous. But when we have the light masks on, um, we can see that we have a significant number of mares that are now cycling here. So the take-home message from that, clients might like to consider that as both an alternative to stabling, but also those that haven't got access to stabling. Uh, there are limited studies on the long-term use of it, but looking at the uh, company's website, there are a lot of um, stud farmers around the world that have said that it's very good for them, very useful, um, and they're benefiting greatly from it from a cost point of view. Um, we're just going to move on here. We're quickly onto a case report. Um, a thoroughbred mare with a gene translocation, um, repeated pregnancy failure, and the highlight of this paper was... Uh, this mare produced four live foals during 10 years as a brood mare. She remained barren or experienced early embryonic loss in the other six years. She, was, she had a normal number of genes but had a translocation of 2 and 13. And I think this is very interesting for us to consider. If we're dealing with these mares, we maybe need to think about a cytogenetic analysis. Um, and then finally, we're going to very briefly just mention the paper by Herrera and co-workers. Um, very interesting paper. They flushed embryos from mares and successfully biopsied 42 out of 63 of those um, embryos and ran the SRY gene PCR to tell the sex of the embryos. 20 out of 20 were correctly ID'd as male and 18 out of 22 were correctly ID'd as, ID'd as female. So we're looking at about a 91% accuracy, but also looking at the pregnancy rate between biopsied and non-biopsied embryos. The biopsy, uh, biopsied embryos, the pregnancy rate was 63% compared to around about 65% for non-biopsied embryos. So this offers us an alternative uh, to, to perhaps to uh, fetal sexing at a later stage and maybe if we're going to have a sex selection perhaps it's better to select the sex at this stage rather than terminate a pregnancy at a later stage if its sex is unwanted um, and that's perhaps a, an ethical question that we have to ask ourselves what is right, what is, what is ethically appropriate thank you
that was a great sort of uh, journey through a, a real variety of, of, of topic areas through reproduction stallions, mares, um, non-pregnant mares, cycling, and, and into some ethical discussions um, at the end. So thanks very much, a great job, and, and at short notice, so we're greatly appreciative of that. Um, any questions from the floor? Can, can I kick off then? Um, James, Lewis said that the, the future in terms of surgery might be moving towards standing. In terms of the future for reproduction, you talked about things like advanced semen analysis, not readily available, but elsewhere in the world it is. Is that the future, or will that be just too prohibitive cost-wise for clients? I think for routine analysis, I mean, if we're talking about the thoroughbred industry, there's a lot of, the, the, in some of those papers, we're also looking at dismount samples. And I think that with a lot of these maybe these uh, assays could be made stall side, whether, you know, and potential there for looking at the fertility of samples stall side more than some of these others. And I think if you've got a, a sub-fertility investigation, you really need to work through the steps to try and understand what's going on with that sperm sample uh -huh. um, and, of course, the individual stallion himself. But I think for long-term fertility prediction, then things are perhaps going to move stall side as well. Right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Any, any other questions from the floor? I've got one more. I'm obsessed with the future at the moment. Maybe it's because there's a referendum next week. But um, blue lights, yes. do you see that taking off? I, I do, actually. There's some of our clients that have already expect, expressed an interest in them. I mean, certain small breeders, one or two mares, you know, with, with mares housed at a different yard, limited electricity, limited stabling. Um, you know, they're trying to breed and trying to breed and produce stock that's available at the right time and uh -huh. they've suffered um, anestrus, long periods of anestrus in the past at the time of year when they want to be breeding. So no, I think there is an interest. And I think that the, it, it, it's a very well marketed product as well. Yeah. I don't think it'll suit everybody within the UK, but I think there's a certain group of people that it will, it'll enable them to do things that they couldn't do before. Okay, great. So that concludes the Scientific Review podcast. I'll now recap the papers that James Crabtree has reviewed. There were two declarations by authors. The first was in the paper by Class et al. Dr. Trodson, one of the co-authors, has professional affiliation with the MOFA TM Minitube of America. The second was in the paper by Murphy et al. A priority preliminary patent application was filed in Ireland in May 2011 by University College Dublin, which describes an invention similar to the light mask used in the current study. For the stallion, the first paper was titled Pyruvate and L-carnitine are pro-survival factors for stallion spermatozoa by Gib et al, published in the Journal of Equine Veterinary Science, 2014, volume 34, issue 1, pages 31 to 32. The second paper was titled The Paradoxical Relationship Between Stallion Fertility and Oxidative Stress. Gib et al, published in The Biology of Reproduction, 2014, published online. For the non-pregnant mare, the first paper was titled The Interrelationship Between Anti-Malarian Hormone ovarian follicular populations and age in mares by Klaas et al published in the Equine Veterinary Journal 2014 published online The second paper was titled 
Advancing maternal age predisposes to mitochondrial damage and loss during maturation of equine oocytes in vitro. By Rambags et al. Published in Therogenealogy, 2014, volume 81, page 959 to 965. The third paper was titled Blue Light from Individual Light Masks Directed at a Single Eye Advances the Breeding Season in Mares by Murphy et al. Published in the Equine Veterinary Journal, 2014, volume 46, issue 5, pages 601 to 605. And the fourth paper in this section is titled Evaluation of Biofilms in Gram-Negative Bacteria Isolated from the Equine Uterus by Ferris et al. Published in the Journal of Equine Veterinary Science, 2014, volume 34, issue 1, pages 121. For the pregnancy section, the first paper was titled Pregnancy without progesterone in horses defines a second endogenous biopotent progesterone receptor agonist, 5-alpha-dihydroprogesterone, by Schultz et al., published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, 101, pages 3365 to 3370. The second paper was titled Serum Amyloid A and Haptoglobulin Concentrations are Increased in Plasma of Mares with Ascending Placentitis in the Absence of Changes in Peripheral Leukocyte Counts or Fibrinogen Concentration by Caniso et al. Published in the American Journal of Reproduction Immunology, 2014 Volume 72, Issue 4 Pages 376 to 385. The case study was titled Repeated Early Embryonic Loss in a Thoroughbred Mare with a Chromosomal Translocation by Lear et al. Published in the Journal of Equine Veterinary Science, 2014. Volume 34, Issue 6 page 805 to 809 and covering ethics the paper was titled equine embryo gender determination by pre-implantation genetic diagnosis pgd on the same day of flushing by herrera et al published in the journal of equine veterinary science 2014 volume 34 issue 1 pages 172 to 173.